Welcome to episode 44 of Tegan Goes Vegan. I'm your host, Tegan Karuna. This week, I spoke with Robert Grillo, who is the author of a new book called Farm to Fable, where he talks about the fictions that we've all bought into about animal use and the way that our food is created. Well, those of us who are vegan don't buy into that stuff anymore, but it's still um, a great read when you're thinking about who, well, when you're thinking about what everybody else is still believing in. I'm not doing a great job of explaining the book, but he does a really good job of explaining it when he's the author. So that's kind of how it goes. So before we get to the housekeeping stuff, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk about the recent U.S. election. It's bad news over here in the U.S. Um, We've somehow managed to elect Donald Trump as our next president. And I think most progressives over here are really distraught about it. And I know I'm still kind of in shock and also trying really hard to think about how I'm going to be able to do things differently going forward. And this is this is a vegan issue because social justice and civil liberties are at the heart of being vegan. But I feel like I've not been doing nearly enough for... I haven't been participating in enough action and I need to make changes. So, I mean, I guess this is just kind of a a word dump on you guys. So I apologize, but it's kind of what it's just been like around here for the last couple of weeks. Um, A lot of feelings and not a lot of well thought out words. Um, But just know that um, there is, there's a lot going on (laughs) right now and So I'm just trying to think about what I can do to be a better advocate for vulnerable beings, and that's people and animals. So in a way, I was really glad that Robert was the first interview that I did after the election, because that's exactly what he talks about, is, you know, how do you talk to people about the things that they believe that you also used to believe. So it's a, it's a good interview and we talk a little bit about the election. So for my non-US listeners, I'm really sorry to subject you to this, but it's a big deal over here in the States. So <laughs> it's kind of overwhelming. Before we get started with the actual interview, I just want to remind you that you can sign up for the newsletter. I sent out the first one back at the beginning of this month. Um, you can sign up for it at tegangoesvegan.com slash contact. If you haven't already rated the show on iTunes or written a review, please take a minute to go do that. I haven't gotten reviews in a couple months and I'm getting sad. So if you would be so inclined as to take a second and do that, I would appreciate it. And it will help other people know that the show is a good listen, a good investment of their time. And you know what? Even if you if you don't want to write a review on iTunes and you just want to send me an email and say hello, I love it when people do that. It's amazing. You can email me at mail at tegangoesvegan.com. That's a new email address, but the old one still works too. So it's mail at tegangoesvegan.com. So that's enough of my rambling. Let's get to Robert and his book, Farm to Fable, and his website, freefromharm.org. And hear what he has to say. So here he is, Robert Grillo. 
So, Robert, when did you become vegan? In uh, 2009. And was that like a, a long process or kind of an overnight? You woke up one day and realized, I have to do this. I can't do what I was doing anymore. It was kind of an epiphany moment. Yeah, it was kind of the latter. Uh, I had kind of seen a lot of, like, I, I had seen a couple of films. One of the films I saw was Food, Inc. And I think after I saw that film, I, I remember the next day going to, to Chipotle for dinner and um, kind of like looking at all the branding that, you know, was saying how, how they source their, their animal products and how great that was. And I kind of bought into that for just like a, a short time, like a couple of weeks. I thought, oh, yeah, there's, there's a humane alternative and it's a viable alternative. And I think I believed in that kind of humane myth for just a couple of weeks. And then after that, I just decided, you know, I didn't really make a, a, a concerted decision, actually. It was, or, or at least it's very like foggy to me. All I can tell you is like about six months after I looked back and realized that I had just kind of decided <clears throat> not to consume any animal products. And it, it just kind of happened, and I looked back at it and realized that I had been vegan for about six months. Interesting. So you kind of became vegan. It was like a sneak attack on yourself. Yeah, it was. It wasn't really... I suppose I had planned it that way or made a decision, but I just realized that this humane myth wasn't real. It was just a myth. And that, and that from that point on, I, I just started not consuming animal products. And, and then after about six months, I was like, you know what? I'm there. Past that, that hurdle, that initial hurdle, the initial learning curve and stuff. And I'm, I'm there and I'm never looking back. Were you reading a lot or watching documentaries or doing something else in that time period? Or was it just kind of an evolution like within your own head? I was, yeah, it, it started with, you know, it was mostly footage, like seeing um, movies like Food Inc. and Peaceable Kingdom and things like that. And watching footage online and YouTube and on Facebook um, that really that was the real motivator for me. And I just couldn't believe that I had never picked up on this sooner. It was just, uh, it was incredibly uh, sad to me that, that I could live, you know, into my forties and never confront this. Well, and that kind of just to like jump right into your book, that's kind of what the whole book is about. So you just published a book um, called farm to fable. And that's kind of the whole premise of it, right? Is that we're, it's all a giant myth. Everything that all of us were taught about how our food is produced. Right. Yeah. The book is really, you know, it, what I realized was that there, there are so many wonderful books and speakers and, 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 you know, papers and, and videos about like the why vegan argument. There's so many great arguments on the health and environmental and animal, you know, on the, the level of animal, you know, reducing animal suffering and all. And I realized there's really not much about the rest of society. 
there is really not, it's really a book about non-veganism, about why in an age when we could, most of us could easily choose otherwise, do we continue consuming animals? And I, I found that it was because that we really believe that that's something that we can and should do, that we have a right to do. And so that was what kind of led me on this trajectory to write the book and to explore the kind of stories and narratives that our culture perpetuates about consuming animals. And I just dug deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject. And the book is kind of the culmination of that. And so in general, when you're writing, you have some kind of intended audience in mind. Um, so like, who is the kind of like stated audience? And then is there, is there a person you were writing, like an individual in your life you were writing this for, or were you like writing it for your, your past self? Like what was the personal motivation? I thought that for one thing that, um, you know, I felt that from my own, what, what kind of, you know, perspective could I lend to, to this discussion, to this movement? And I realized that what I had was a background in marketing and branding. And so I've been behind the scenes. I've been very familiar with how much effort and money goes into kind of shaping our perceptions of food animals, of farmed animals, and of the food we eat. And I realized that I could, you know, that's where I could actually have uh, you know, some authority and some impact. So the audience for the book is, you know, twofold. I think that the main audience is the general public. And what I hope they walk away with is that they will look more critically at what's around them when they're shopping, when they're in a restaurant and out with friends or when they're online or when they're watching a film or Netflix or whatever, whatever social touch point they're interacting with, that they'll look more critically at it and see how we're being manipulated to make certain kinds of food choices that really are very harmful and on so many different levels. And early in the book, you talk about um, your marketing career a little bit um, working for McDonald's um, and specifically the, um, the animal part of the marketing, something about, I think it was like the Happy Meal packaging or something like that. Like, will you tell me a little bit more about that experience? <laughs> yeah. Because that sounds like, I mean, it was before you were vegan. But like, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's so incredible to me. It is. It's a, it's incredibly, it's like tragically ironic that, you know, in, I'm 51 now, and when I was in my late 20s, I was working at different ad agencies and creative agencies around Chicago as a freelancer. And so in one particular place, um, one of their clients was McDonald's, and I found myself working on Happy Meal boxes and helping designers design them. And, you know, the goal was to show, like, oh, how... um you know, we can portray happy and fun farm animals on the package that contain the body parts of animals that, you know, likely live very short and miserable lives. So it, it's just kind of one of those stunning um, 
examples of how disconnected we are until we become aware of of what really what our food is and so when you were creating that packaging what what were you thinking then did you think about it at all no i honestly can't say that i that i thought about it at all i think that i was just as much under the spell of the brainwashing and the apathy that that brainwashing fosters in us that it just didn't didn't occur to me i mean i don't know that anybody would could possibly blame you for that <laughs> i think we all <laughs> bought into it you know those of us who are vegan have hopefully been able to push that aside um but it it, it is so pervasive yeah yeah it's uh it starts in childhood you know i mean what i talk about in my book is how how it starts in childhood and how you know like stewart and cole are two reach researchers that have done a lot of work in this area about how 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 children are socialized um very early on to kind of just you know as a rite of passage into adulthood you accept the fact that this class of animals or these species of animals have a certain purpose and that's what god intended or that's what nature intended and that's part of the natural cycle and we just shut children down if they ask about it if they think about it critically we just shut them down and what's so you know what's fascinating about that is in every other area of a child's development we try to encourage them to think creatively and critically right we want them to think about what they want to do when they grow up and who their friends are and why but like on this issue we just completely shut them down well i would imagine that it's because parents aren't thinking critically about it either or not parents but the adults in that child's life aren't thinking critically about it yes absolutely yeah well, it's just passed on you know from one generation to the next yeah so let's talk a little bit about like the the foundational fictions and kind of the the underpinnings of this whole problem that you go through in the book um like you are the expert you tell me you talk to me about it <laughs> sure yeah the first big fiction foundational fiction that i talk about in the book is consent what i call consent and um you know consent is basically the idea that that animals are willing participants in whatever it is that we'd like to do with them and you know there's there's so many there's so many examples of this, um, but it really has ancient roots. We can find ancient examples of this. And so one of, one of the examples I talk about in the book is in the Hindu tradition, um, the very popular portrayal of Lord Krishna milking the sacred cow. And so we see paintings and, you know, paintings and, and pictures of this are very popular in Hindu culture. Um, and there's, you know, hint, uh, uh, Krishna milking the cow and the, the mother cow is looking at him very, very affectionately and her calves are kind of sitting by her legs. They look very content and, and it's a very benevolent pastoral scene. And then, you know, we find striking parallels in modern times with like, you know, the packaging of 
organic valley milk products. Man, organic so valley, of- those packages, like they bother me so much. There are a number of people at, um, that I work with who use organic valley, uh, dairy products in their coffee and it just, the packaging just burns me up. I just want to throw it away. It makes me so angry. Yeah. It's, it's really this consent fiction, you know, primarily that instead of Krishna, we have the family farmers and their children who are affectionately petting these cows that, you know, are consensual. And so, you know, once we believe in consent, once we believe that there's no problem with using animals and there's no harm in using animals because they don't mind it, then it just becomes a matter of how we treat them and how humanely we treat them. And I I believe that's the reason why the discourse today is so focused on humane treatment. What do you mean by that? Well, like what, yeah. let, let me clarify. What do you mean that, that, um, the idea of consent and that animals are okay with sacrificing for us is linked to like the discourse on humane treatment? Right. Because once, if we don't have to consider, like consent says that use is okay and animals are consensual, right? Right. So if we take that off the table, then the only thing left to really concern ourselves with is how do we treat them? So they don't mind being used as resources or commodities. So now it's just a matter of giving them a decent life. And that's where humane washing comes in as a, you know, the, the most powerful fiction built upon that. I see. So, so the idea being that if we accept that animals are willing to consent to their use, then the, you know, the, the moral thing to do is ensure that they have a good life. That's then that becomes our only real obligation is okay. We, we need to make sure that they suffer minimally during the time that we allow them to stay alive. Right. And then humane washing is kind of the, the marketing side of, of trying to convince people that, animals are treated well when in reality they're really not exactly it's what i what i say in the book it's putting a humane face on an inherently violent and exploitative industry that kills 10 billion baby animals a year in the u.s alone and um you know one of the one of the 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 personas one of the people in the humane washing in the humane movement that I talk quite a bit about in the book is Temple Grandin because, um, you know, she's so ubiquitous, um, in, in the humane movement and, and, you know, with the film that she starred in and the, you know, that the HBO film that was made about her, um, was really portraying her as something of kind of a mother Teresa to farmed animals, you know? And in reality, she's she's a paid spokesperson for the meat industry. Yeah, I didn't realize that I haven't spent a lot of time engaging with any of her work or anything about her, really. Um, I was really surprised at her ties with the industry. Like I knew I knew that she was involved, but I didn't realize the extent to which she was. Yeah, right. She's. She's really heavily involved and, 
I was really surprised and still am at the HBO film because, you know, you think of HBO as being an otherwise very progressive kind of, you know, network that show that creates great content. And this was just complete humane washing. Um, completely missing the, the mark, totally distorting reality on, on, who she really is. I mean, it kind of speaks to how deeply embedded our cultural norms are that even a, a network that is known for kind of being unflinching about things still couldn't bring itself to, to really look at the reality of what's happening. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I guess th- my thoughts on this are kind of colored by the recent U.S. election and kind of feeling a little bit distraught and powerless in, in what's going on. But it seems like such a big thing to take on, right? Like it seems like trying to change the hearts and minds of so many people is just a really overwhelming task. And, yeah. so, you know, when it, when it's so deeply embedded. Right. And, you know, yeah, this, this, whole, this whole election has really, you know, I mean, in a way it's humbled me and it's in a way it's kind of rallied me. It's made me angry and outraged and wanting to, you know, become more active. Um, and, it, you know, I'm already active for, you know, for the animal cause and for the vegan cause, but then I realized even more how important um, all of the other related, you know, causes are that that we have to struggle for um, be based on this, you know, the results of this election, which, you know, that the inner circle of people that he's bringing into uh, his fold are, are people that are really antagonistic to justice and a, a, a more just world. And that's an incredibly, um, you know, it's an incredibly daunting reality that I think we're still kind of grappling with. Like, is this really real? Are we, you know, we're still like pinching ourselves. Yeah. We're still in that denial, that denial portion of the, of the stages of grief, right? Like it still kind of doesn't feel real. And at the same time, I think a lot of people are starting to feel more galvanized and realizing, I know I count myself in this, realizing that what I've been doing isn't enough. And I think that that kind of extends to the, the whole social justice world that, that I feel like I can be doing more on all counts and I should be doing more on all, you know, in, in all of the different ways because all of those types of oppression are all linked to one another. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's reading your book was really interesting to me because it was so clear to me how deep these like tentacles go. Like kept having this image of like tentacles. And, and so, you know, when somebody is, is reading the book and thinking about like what this means for them as an individual, like what kinds of advice would you have for them? 
Well, you know, I think there's a couple of really important things that come out of the book for, for us, like for people that care about, you know, animals and, and vulnerable human groups in the environment, people that want to know, like, you know, what, what is all this information? What is a better understanding of the fictions of animal consumption mean for us and our, in our activism? <clears throat> and I think there's, there's at least a couple of important lessons. The first is that there's a very important connection between beliefs and behavior. Um, so, you know, the fact that these corporations spend billions of dollars every year and trying to appeal to our beliefs and values about consuming animals is a testament to just how important they are to me. Um, someone asked me in another interview whether I had any scientific evidence for this connection between how we, what we believe in and how we behave, what food choices we make. And I said, no, not really. But the evidence is all around us every single day. All of these, these clever and creative examples of how food brands try to appeal to those beliefs and values that we have about eating animals is all around us. Right. So we're, we are living in a world that is saturated with marketing constantly and knowing how much money is being pumped into that system is and I'm a pretty evidence-driven person, but even I'm willing to kind of say like they know what they're doing, they know how to get us to buy stuff, and there's you know all of this other, um, all this other research that that food companies do about how to make food, you know, more craveable and things like that. Like we know that that stuff is happening, and we know that it works because we can see sales of various things rising. Yeah, right, and we can see. You know, the humane washing movement and the humane movement kind of building in response to that. I mean, this is like their last great chance to uh, kind of, you know, intercept the, the discourse away from veganism and to retain those customers that might otherwise not be customers because they don't think that the, you know, they don't trust the industry. This is the way for them to kind of retain those customers by saying, Hey, no, there really is, you know, there is a way to do this that, that will respect the animals and, and, and you can still, you, you can still have the, those products and, and it can still be sustainable and humane. Um, and people desperately want to believe that, but of course, you know, upon closer inspection and a little bit of critical thinking, it's quite obvious that that's just not, not real. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to my, <laughs> my own experiences, um, being vegetarian for a while and then saying, Oh, I'll just eat humane animal products. And that didn't ever happen, but it, it allowed me a little bit of, um, moral, it let me off the hook a little bit. Um, and that was long before I became vegan, but, um, it was, it was definitely like I bought into it a hundred percent. Like I was a Michael Pollan omnivore's dilemma yeah. disciple. 
Right. Um, which is when I saw that um, he came up in the book a couple times, I was like, yep, he definitely <laughs> tricked me too. <laughs> I was one of them. Yeah. He's a very savvy spokesperson and um you know he has some he has a really interesting I, I have to hand it to him i mean if if his mantra of eating more plants was you know was really all what, that he was about i would say hey that's that's pretty good that's pretty positive but the fact is that he he relishes and celebrates um, animal exploitation and consumption in, in ways that are really quite morose um, because he knows better, because he's one of those people that actually does know the true cost of, of consuming those products and then still kind of fetishizes about it. What do you, not to talk about his personal psychology but like what do you think is going on there with with people who do know but aren't willing to make the change because there are there are people who watch earthlings and there are people who read the books and and go on the websites and they know they can they've seen it but there's they still don't make a change right i think that social pressures and conventions um, play a, a large part of that. Um, to, to a larger extent, we know that society still has our back. So if we decide to continue consuming those products, even knowing how, how harmful those decisions are, society will still have our backs. Um, most of the people um, that we will come in contact with that will will not will not hate us for it <laughs> mm -hmm. um well any and even vegans probably won't hate you for it most vegans are pretty nice yeah we're told not to judge we're told not to um to really be honest basically to just kind of try to encourage people in any way we can but um the other part of it is that i think that we have to recognize that this might be a much smaller, I'm hoping it's a much smaller part, but I think sadism, sadism and domination is part of the darker side of our nature to, with, with some people more than other. And God knows that this election is showing that, that there is a darker side of our nature to want to dominate and control vulnerable people and vulnerable beings. And we have to fight that. It's a, it's an impulse that, that we need to fight that is, that is not part of a, a, a just world, um, and is not a better part of our nature. It really is, is the worst part of our nature, I think, that desire for domination. Right. So this is kind of a nice segue, um, into, so we're coming into uh, U.S. Thanksgiving, and then mm -hmm. after that, the various holidays, um, and there's going to be a lot of situations 
I'm thinking entirely of myself, um, where I'm going to have to sit at a table with people who are going to try to tell me a bunch of lies about the food that they made. Um, you know, mm-hmm. this turkey was raised humanely, so it's totally fine, and this and that thing, and why aren't you eating that? And, you know, just like those same conversations. So, like, what, how do you handle those situations? Do you find yourself in those, in those scenarios? I do. Yeah. Um, but you know, and, and I, and I appreciate the struggles. I've had several of them in the past. And for me, each situation is different. I've had confrontations with people. I've had unpleasant confrontations with people that I think ultimately led to something positive because if we didn't have that kind of heated exchange, we may have never really honestly, you know, looked at the subject. Um, and in other cases, I, I felt that I just kind of, you know, was passive and, and, and not addressing it. And I didn't feel good about that. Um, but now I think, you know, with, with the holidays, now I think that I, I, I think that I have family and friends. I have people that I've kind of attracted around me that really want and support that. And, and so it's just become, I guess, less difficult now than it used to be. But there's been a lot of trying times. Do you have a lot of vegans in your family? No, I don't. But like, for example, this Thanksgiving, I'm hosting it and I'm making the main dishes and mm-hmm. everyone else is bringing side dishes. And um, everyone's really, you know, happy about it, really excited about it. So then um, I'll show them our new Free From Harm video. I want my nieces to see the video we produced about how turkeys love to love affection and love to be hugged. And I want everyone to see that. I want everyone to take four minutes to just watch that and, and see a different side of what Thanksgiving means. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I didn't have a great video to show, but I hosted Christmas last year at my house and it was a vegan Christmas and that was that. There was no conversation. There was no argument. There was no, like, nobody had any say in what was happening. It was just what I was doing. And so it definitely, mm-hmm. it showed my my family that you can have a really satisfying celebratory meal and not need any, not need to be, not to exploit any animals to get that. Yeah, it, it it's just generally so easy, um, you know, and yet so difficult, I guess, because, um, you know, it's, it's about the animals, but also like, you know, the different, like, I think this Thanksgiving is going to be probably the most dichotomous because of the election. I mean, I can't imagine all these people after this having to go and deal with like, you know, the two sides of America now, you know, and having family members that are on one or the other side, because we've never been more divided, I think, than, than after this election. It's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough one. 
for sure. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, will you talk a little bit about Free From Harm and what you do over there and, you know, all of the resources that you have available? Yeah, sure. Um, we, we, we recently underwent a major rehaul with our website, which kind of like was out of control with almost like 700 plus pages. And we just took an inventory of everything and we decided what our strongest content was and got, we just got rid of stuff that we thought was redundant and not as good. And then we redesigned the site and we launched the new site um, about a month ago. And so our online presence and our online activism is really kind of our strength. And I think it comes from, you know, my involvement in marketing and in website work. So I just felt like that's really where I can contribute. And so that's where our strength has been. But um, we do some community outreach, too, and we want to get more involved in that. We also have a a, a group of volunteers called the pollinators network, which is a, what we realized is that we have a, we have a fan base, um, of a, a, a lot of people that are really savvy with social media and they really want to, they're already doing a lot to share our content, but we decided let's create something more formal. So we created the pollinators network and this is a group of like our diehard social media fans that um, that we are mentoring and helping become better and better communicators and activists online. Um, and our content supports, you know, our content and resources support them. And our, you know, it's kind of a two way street, but that's something that we've been putting a lot of effort into lately is 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 uh, is developing that network. That sounds really cool. And and you guys do still have a ton of resources on the website, even though you've done some paring down. Yeah, we're at about 425 pages, and I think those are our better pages. It still seems like a lot. It still seems like, like um, you know, it should be half that or whatever or less. But, like, I, I'm pretty... At this point, I'm pretty content with what we have. And I, I, I think where we need to improve is maybe just to continue to make the the experience for users easier to find what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. you know? That is the key to a good website. It's yeah, not easy. <laughs> ongoing challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, so aside from Free From Harm, where can people find you? Where can they buy the book? What is, you know, how how do people get their hands on that stuff? Sure. Um, anyone is, that would like to reach me directly can email me at robert at freefromharm.org. Um, anyone looking for the book can either find it on the Amazon US or UK site. If they don't want to buy through Amazon, they can go directly to the publisher at veganpublishers.com and uh, order it there. Awesome. And uh, are you on any kind of social media or is Free From Harm um, yeah. on social media? Absolutely. I have my own Twitter, um, my own Twitter page and Facebook page, um, where I'm pretty active. And then of course, free from harm has, you know, something like close to 300,000 fans on their page. Wow. So <laughs> I should, uh, I should 
take some lessons from you <laughs> about how to do this stuff. Um, so, well, thank you so much for, for talking with me. Um, I really enjoyed the book and I highly recommend it, um, to anybody who's interested in, in why people act the way they do, which I think everyone who's vegan is kind of like, what is wrong with everybody else? Even though we were the everybody else not that long ago. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's that. And how do we influence people and how do we build a movement? I hope that not that I feel like I'm an expert on building a movement, but I feel like I hope that some of the insights from that in the book point to like how we can better, like how we can build our movement too, because I'm all about that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely really helpful for me to start thinking about the, the kind of sociological issues at play with, Mm -hmm. with humane washing and with, um, kind of the, uh, I'm losing the word. It's late in the day. Um, (laughs) kind of like the divorce from, from what's actually happening. Um, yeah. And, and just keeping those things in mind when, when talking to others is, is going to be helpful for me for sure. Yeah. So thank you for being on the show and thank you for writing the book. And, um, no, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's, it's been wonderful to talk to you, Tegan. Tegan Goes Vegan is produced by Tegan and Nathan Karuna with music by Amanda D'Amato. To learn more about the show, you can go to TeganGoesVegan.com, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast, and on Twitter at TeganGoesVegan. You can also sign up for emails at TeganGoesVegan.com slash contact. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and review it on iTunes at bit.ly slash vegan podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more great vegan content.